Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Some of you at least might know that song. Those are the words of John Lennon. The song is called Imagine. John Lennon dreamt of the day when the world would be united in rejecting God. As he saw it, If we got rid of God, there'd be peace. Peace at last. Our problems would be solved. And the reason this song is still popular today is because plenty of people share John Lennon's dream. Get rid of God and all our problems would disappear. Now the Old Testament Israelites, I realize may not have put things quite the same way as John Lennon. They were actually up for fighting some wars when they got the chance. But last week, as we looked at 1 Samuel, we heard Israel's own version of Imagine. Their dream was to be just like all the other nations. They had always lived under God's kingship. But last week, They demanded a human king to lead them. And God told Samuel, they have rejected me as their king. That was a turning point in Israel's history. Not only because the people demanded a human king, but also because of God's response. God said to Samuel, give them what they want. Listen to them and give them a king. That's the background to our passage this morning. Even before we open our Bibles this morning, we know that Israel is going to get what she asked for. She's going to get a king like the other nations, with all that that involves. And God has warned Israel it's going to involve a lot of loss for them. It is not going to be the bliss they imagined it would be. Their king will take and take from them. But it's what they asked for. This morning we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 9 and through into the first half of chapter 10. In the church Bible, that's page 278. In the large print, page 427. And what we're going to find in this passage is that although Israel has rejected God as their king, the rejected king still reigns. I'm going to read the whole of this passage, beginning at chapter 9, verse 1. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Ben-Korath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul. As handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller 
than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on into the district of Sha'alim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zaph, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Saul said to the servant, If we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again, Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if someone went to inquire of God, they would say, Come, let us go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Good. Saul said to the servant, come, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young woman coming out to draw water. And they asked them, is the seer here? He is, they answered. He's ahead of you. Hurry now. He has just come to our town today. For the people have a sacrifice at the high place. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Go up now. You should find him about this time. They went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel, coming towards them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will send you on your way and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? Saul answered, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited, about thirty in number. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the thigh with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, here is what has been kept for you. 
eat, because it was set aside for you for this occasion. From the time I said, I have invited guests. And Saul dined with Samuel that day. After they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. They rose about daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get ready, and I will send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you, stay here for a while, so that I may give you a message from God. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He's asking, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, pipes, and harps being played before them. And they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them. And you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, And who is their father? So it became a saying, Is Saul also among the prophets? After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Now Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, Where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said. But when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, he assured us that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. This is God's word. Last week, chapter 8 ended with God promising to give the Israelites what they asked for. And chapter 9 begins by introducing us to a young man called Asked For. 
That's what the name Saul means. Now, no doubt his name had some special significance for his parents. Maybe they had prayed for a child, and when their prayer was answered, they commemorated that by calling their child asked for. But whatever significance Saul's name had for his immediate family, it is going to have major significance in the history of Israel. In this young man, Israel is getting what it asked for. In verse 1, we're given some of Saul's family background. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, and we're told that his father, Kish, is a man of standing, a powerful man. So however much humility Saul may appear to be showing in the future, actually he comes from a powerful family. Then in verse 2, we're not only given Saul's name, but also some details about him. Have a look at verse 2. We're told he was as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. It's significant that Saul is introduced here by two comments about his physical appearance. There is nothing here about his character. There's nothing about his competence. No, he's handsome and he's tall. In fact, he's the tallest and the handsomest that Israel has. Several different writers have pointed out that if there was such a thing as a Mr. Israel competition, Saul would have won it. His appearance is great. He is physically impressive. He looks like a king. He's just what Israel asked for. But then verses 3 to 14 give us a fuller introduction to Mr. Israel. He's tall, he's handsome, and he is clueless. It all begins with a crisis on the family farm. Kish's donkeys have gone missing. Donkeys were valuable things. Today, the equivalent might be a fleet of vans. Kish cannot afford to lose these donkeys. So he sends his tall, handsome son to find them. And he also sends a servant with Saul. It soon becomes obvious here that the servant is the leader of this team. They wander around the hills for a while, and then Saul says, let's go home. Dad is going to be worried about us. Saul wants to quit. But the servant is not going to give up so easily. He notices there's a town close by, and he says to Saul in verse 6, Look, in this town, there's a man of God. He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. This is our first clue that Saul is pretty clueless. The town the servant is talking about is Ramah. And the man of God who lives there is Samuel. Now we have been told in previous chapters that Samuel's word in these days comes to all Israel. And although Saul actually lives only five miles from Ramah, apparently he is completely unaware of Samuel. Later when he he meets him, he doesn't even recognize him. 
This is not a good sign. Saul is what Israel asked for. But they may live to regret what they asked for. And at this point, Saul makes some excuses, more excuses. We've nothing to give the man. Apparently, Saul thinks they're going to have to buy the guidance of this man of God. And that was how it worked outside of Israel. But Saul doesn't seem to know how things work with genuine men of God. But the servant overcomes Saul's excuse. He produces a silver coin from somewhere, and they go on towards the town. And amazingly, we discover that Samuel has just arrived back that day. He's come to preside over a sacrifice followed by a meal. So if Saul and his servant hurry, they can catch Samuel on his way from the town to the high place. That's the place of the sacrifice. And sure enough, verse 14 tells us they went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming towards them on his way up to the high place. So far, this is pretty low-key stuff. A hunky-looking guy trailing around the countryside after his servant looking for some donkeys. From a human perspective, we might wonder, how is this significant? Well, we're about to find out. There is much more going on here. Look again at verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Israel has rejected the Lord as their king. But the king they rejected is still reigning. He's orchestrating these events. The focus of our passage has just shifted. It has shifted from the king Israel asked for to the king who appoints kings. Now we know that what seemed to be a wild donkey chase was actually God's way of bringing Samuel face to face with Saul. God is directing these events down to the very last detail. If the donkeys hadn't been lost, Saul would have stayed at home blow-drying his hair or lifting weights or whatever Mr. Israel normally did. If the servant hadn't found that silver coin in his pocket, they would probably have turned away from the town of Ramah. And if they had arrived the day before, Samuel wouldn't have been there. God is directing these events. He is the king who appoints kings. And even at this early stage, we get a sense of what Saul's kingship is going to be like. It's going to be a mixed bag. Not all bad, but bad overall. Look what God says to Samuel in the middle of verse 16. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, 
for their cry has reached me. Three times in verses 16 and 17, God calls Israel my people. They have rejected God, but they're still his people. And although God is bringing judgment on them by giving them what they've asked for, even as he brings judgment, God is going to show them some mercy. Saul will bring a measure of deliverance to Israel. There will be some victories against their enemies. In his wrath, God will remember mercy. He will bring some good out of Israel's foolishness and rebellion. But overall, Saul's reign will not be good. Notice what God says at the end of verse 17. The NIV reads, He, that's Saul, will govern my people. The word in Hebrew can mean govern, but if that's what it means here, it's the only place in the Bible where it means that. It's normally translated hold back or hinder. And that negative meaning is the most likely one here. God is saying, yes, Saul will win some battles, but his reign overall will hold my people back. Saul will be a hindrance to my people. Israel will get what they asked for, but it won't be all they imagined it would be. Well, Saul arrives at Ramah, he meets Samuel, and this event at the high place turns into a meal in Saul's honor. He and his servant, we're told, are seated at the head of the table. Saul is given the choice cut of the meat. In fact, he's treated like a king, even though he doesn't yet know he's going to be king. Apparently, at this point in time, the only ones really in the know are God and God's prophet, Samuel. The nation of Israel has rebelled against God. They imagine they can live without him, but they're still utterly dependent on him, and they don't even know it. They even need God's help to carry out their rejection of God. One preacher puts it like this, God is still king, even when we don't want him to be king. That's true for any nation or government or leader that rejects God. And it's true for every single one of us. God is still king, even when you or I don't want him to be king. Even when we reject him. He's still reigning. We may deny God's authority over us, but every day our lives are still unfolding under his sovereign direction. We may reject God's kingship, but that does not diminish his kingship. It doesn't lessen his power in the smallest degree. And so we are wise when we embrace his reign rather than trying to imagine him away. We are wise when we walk out of those doors every Sunday and do what he has told us is good 
rather than what our society tells us is good or even what our own hearts might be telling us is good. Our society might be dreaming along with John Lennon. But in the real world, God reigns all the time. And you and I are wise when we live in line with that reality. Up to this point, Saul has been oblivious to that reality. As far as he understands it, he's been doing his own thing. He's been unaware that God is directing his life. He's been clueless about the bigger picture of his life. But that's all about to end. Because the day after this feast up at the high place, Samuel and Saul are walking back to town. And chapter 9, verse 27 tells us that Samuel takes Saul aside and he says, stay here for a while so that I may give you a message from God. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? The oil poured on Saul's head is symbolic. It indicates God has chosen Saul for a special task. Now later on there will be a public anointing, but this one is for Saul's benefit. And the words Samuel uses are very, very significant. Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Some translations say over his people Israel. But what the Hebrew actually says is over his inheritance. And that word could be translated his estate. Several years ago, Megan and I decided we really should have a well drawn up. So we contacted a company that looked reputable. Actually, it's mainly because they were way cheaper than anyone else. They sent out this guy to take our details, and he kept talking about our estate. Now, to me, that means a country house with large grounds and pheasants running around. And I knew that we didn't have one of those. But it turns out, as all of you would have known, that our estate just means everything we happen to own. And that helps us understand what's going on here. Saul has been chosen to take care of God's estate. Specifically, in his case, that means he's to take care of the land of Israel and the Israelites who live in that land. So yes, Saul will be called ruler or king. But what he's ruling over is not his. In the bigger scheme of things, Saul is the steward or the caretaker of God's estate. Here, from the very beginning of Saul's kingship, before it's even begun, it's being made clear to him he is a king under God. God is not surrendering his estate to Saul. He's entrusting it to Saul's care. Saul is being anointed to serve God. He is to serve the king who lends power to kings. Now, none of us are kings. 
But there is a much wider principle here that does apply to all of us. Psalm 24 tells us this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So it's true, God's people have a special place in God's estate. Out of everything that he owns, his people are his treasured possession. That's true. But it's also true that the whole world is God's estate. Every inch of it is his. And what that means is any authority you or I might have is authority that's been delegated to us by God. Church leaders are to lead and care for God's church. The church is not ours. Parents, you have been entrusted with children by God. Ultimately, they're not yours. They're part of God's estate. That means you're to care for them and train them and love them for him. You're to parent in accordance with his word. And if you're in any kind of a position of authority at work, God has delegated that authority to you. Your workplace is part of God's estate. Doing your job well and using your authority well is something you are to do for God. So we may not think of ourselves as kings or queens, but at some level, God has delegated part of his estate to us. He's given each of us something to rule over for him. If you're unemployed, your days belong to God. The time on your hands is God's time. He has delegated it to you. So how are you managing that part of God's estate? Do you look on your time as if it's yours to waste? Or are you asking how you can glorify God with the time that's on your hands? If you're retired, have you been thinking of this honestly as your time to be a little selfish at last. You've lived most of your life catering to other people's needs, fitting in with other people's schedules. Do you see this as the time to indulge yourself? Or do you realize that the years of your retirement are part of God's estate? If you're at school, then you're at the stage of beginning to figure out what your strengths are. You're getting a sense of what you're good at. Those gifts and abilities you have belong to God. They are part of his estate too. So don't think of them just in terms of how much money they can help you to earn in life. Start asking how you can use those gifts to glorify the one who actually owns them. 
Our God is the king who lends power to kings and to everybody else. That's what Samuel explains to Saul as he anoints him. And then this truth is demonstrated for Saul. That's the point of all these unusual things that happen next. They are signs for Saul that this is from God. So after Samuel anoints Saul, he tells him he's going to meet three groups of people. First, he'll meet two men, and they will tell him that his donkeys have been found. Then he'll meet another group of three men who'll give him some bread. Then, finally, he's going to meet a procession of prophets. These prophets are going to be having a bit of a praise and worship jamboree. And when Saul meets them, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon him, and he will join in the praise jam. And then look what Samuel says to Saul in verse 7. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. The signs that Samuel has mentioned are to convince Saul God is in this. Samuel is not just taking matters into his own hands. He's not acting on his own authority. God will confirm Samuel's words in these pretty unusual ways. And when that happens, Saul is to do whatever his hand finds to do. That does not mean do whatever you want. It means do the work God gives you to do. Take up your calling and rule God's people well. And do it with full confidence that God will be with you. He will supply all of the power you need. That's the significance of the Spirit of the Lord coming powerfully upon Saul. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit came to empower people for specific tasks. That's what's going to happen to Saul. After he leaves Samuel and meets these singing prophets, Saul is going to get a little foretaste of the power of God. And that power will be available to him to enable him to do what God has called him to do. And notice again, Saul is to exercise this God-given power under the authority of God's word. Look what Samuel says to him in verse 8. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you and sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Samuel will tell Saul what he has to do. Back in chapters 3 and 4, we were told Samuel is God's mouthpiece. God's word comes to Israel through Samuel. And here Saul is told very, very clearly, yes, you're going to be king, but you're to be king under God's word. The power you have is to be exercised in accordance with God's word. What that means is Saul has to listen to Samuel. God's king is under the authority of God's prophet. God's king is to be ruled by God's word. 
Now, we have seen and agreed that none of us are kings. We're not national leaders in any sense. But we've also seen that one way or another, every single one of us is a steward of God's estate. He has delegated some part of it to each one of us. So this message is for us too. Whether it's leading in a marriage or in a business, whether it's making use of time or abilities, skills, you and I are to rule our part of God's estate under the authority of God's word. And for us, that means God's written word, the Bible. Well, in the final verses here, the signs that Samuel has mentioned come true. Saul does end up prophesying with the singing prophets. And those who know Saul and who see the change in him begin to ask questions. But for the moment, Saul keeps quiet. Verse 16 says, he did not tell what Samuel had said about the kingship. Later on, everything will be made public. But for now, only Samuel and Saul know what God is doing. But you and I have been given a peek behind the scenes. We know the king Israel rejected is still reigning over Israel. Israel's God is the king of kings. And he's the king of prime ministers and cleaning ladies. He's the king of handymen and accountants and scientists and lawyers and counselors and classroom assistants and students and pastors. God has chosen each of us to rule over a little part of his estate. He will give us the power we need to do it well. And he expects us to do it under the authority of his word. We started with the words of John Lennon's godless dream. But we can thank God that it was nothing more than a dream. Because the reality is that our God reigns. And we're going to close with two songs reaffirming that reality. We're going to stand to sing, Be Thou My Vision, and Behold Our God, Seated on His Throne.